This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Turn with me, please, if you would, to the book of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. You know, it has been said that there is a scarlet thread that runs through the Bible. And what people mean when they say that is that Jesus is the central figure and salvation is the central theme of this whole book. Which, of course, is true. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, Jesus' substitutionary death there is promised by God. But I would suggest to you another word picture. Um, Rather than talking about a scarlet thread... We can speak of these themes, Jesus and redemption, as a scarlet thread, but I want to ask you this morning to use your imagination and to picture them instead as a scarlet stream. And I'll explain what I mean there. Uh, See, you you go back to the book of Genesis, and there's just uh, a trickle. Uh, There are hints and there are pictures of what's coming. But even even that prophecy I mentioned in Genesis 3.15... We understand it as being about Christ, but to Adam and Eve, it was unclear. Um, In fact, there are things to suggest that they thought when Cain was born that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Uh, But it was unclear to them. It was a shadowy promise. They weren't sure exactly what it meant. And as we make our way through the Old Testament, if you read, as many of you do, uh, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation in a year... Uh, You work your way through all of those scriptures, and as you go through the Old Testament, there's more and more light that's shed. Uh, There are more and more prophecies that point to the coming of Christ. And so, um, if we we think of our word picture, it begins with a trickle, and it becomes a stream. Uh, It's more substantial. There's there's more to it. We have more understanding. Uh, It's clearer. And... It takes up more and more of our attention as we make our way through uh, the rocky history of the nation of Israel, uh, as we read through the messages of of Israel's faithful prophets. By the time we reach Matthew chapter 1, you could say the stream has become a river. The promised one has a name now, Jesus, uh, the Savior. I think the book of Matthew could aptly begin with the words, the beginning of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, God becomes a man. And and as we read through the Gospels, we see more and more clearly who this wonderful Savior is. We come to know much more clearly than we knew in Genesis, even more clearly than we knew through the messages of the prophets, we come to know who Christ is. And and that becomes uh, clearer and clearer, the Scarlet River Uh, continues to take up more and more of our attention to the point that Jesus' precious blood is shed as he dies on the cross. And his work of salvation is is done. The the work of of giving his life for us. And so everything is led up to that moment. But even there, uh, things continue to become broader and broader. Christ continues to take up more and more of our attention. We look at at the book of Acts and think of the early church as they spread the message of Christ. And that theme becomes more and more central uh, to the scripture. And then through the epistles, as God continues to reveal the truth of who Christ is, the depth of what salvation means, until finally we reach Revelation chapter 1. And when we get there, that trickle that became a stream, that became a river, is now a flood. Uh, It's overwhelming. Uh, Jesus and his perfect redemption have become the overwhelming theme that make every other aspect of this book pale in comparison. And I hope you can look at the book of Revelation that way. Look with me at the first words of Revelation chapter 1. Just the first five words the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I don't know what your Bible says at the beginning of that book, of, of the book, what the title is given. We usually just talk about Revelation. Um, my, my Bible says the Revelation of St. John the Divine. I don't know who came up with that title or what exactly that even means. But um, the title given to us by Scripture for this book is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation, uh, it, it's a Greek word, apocalypsis, which if you hear that word, you probably are hearing an English word. Um, it's, it's pretty easy to surmise that our word apocalypse comes from that term. And of course, when we think of apocalypse, we think of the end of the world, catastrophic things happening, things being destroyed, uh, the world coming to an end as we know it. And, of course, that's a, a theme that's popular today uh, in entertainment, all kinds of crazy things that people put out there. When you think about the apocalypse, the end of everything, the destruction of everything, but that's not what that word means in Greek at all. Um, that's often what a lot of people think about when they think of the book of Revelation. But this word actually means disclosure. It comes from a word, apocalypto, which means to uncover or to unveil. And so it might be clearer for us to think about this book being titled The Unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's literally what this term means. See, the Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, who was a shadowy promise in Genesis chapter 3, who was a miraculous baby in Matthew chapter 1, as we reach the book of Revelation, is clearly the central figure of human history. If you read the Bible from front to back, you slowly see more and more of who he is until now, in the book of Revelation, he's fully unveiled. And we truly see the face of Christ. And that's what we're going to consider today. I know that's a long introduction, but we're going to consider the face of Christ. And I encourage you, I, I personally want to do this in 2021, but I encourage you to study through this book of Revelation, looking specifically at the glory of the revealed Christ. I'd encourage you, as you take time to study uh, what is often a confusing and controversial book, that you'd really focus on him. Focus on the great theme, the revelation of Jesus Christ that is declared as the purpose of this book in verse 1. Um, I firmly believe that God didn't give us the book of Revelation primarily to satisfy our curiosity about the end of the world. I believe he primarily gave us the book of Revelation so that we would fall down and worship his son. And again, this is a lengthy introduction, but I really wanted to whet your appetite for this wonderful book of the Bible, specifically focusing on Christ. And today, that's what we're going to do, and we're just going to begin to, to look at a, a tiny bit of what we learn and what we see of Christ in this book uh, as we look at this first chapter. Uh, so take a look with me here at Revelation chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 9, um, and please read, read along with me in your Bible if you, if you have that there. Um, but Revelation chapter 1, uh, in verse 9, John begins to tell his audience a personal story. And he says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book... And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. 
and he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. This is quite the vision. And of course, we understand this is just the beginning of all that John is going to experience, all that he's going to see, all that the Lord is going to show him. But here, this, this, if we continued reading, this one who is like unto the Son of Man goes on to commission John to write this book of Scripture. Uh, but we're not going to focus on that commission today. We're going to focus on the face of Christ. That's who greets John here. John sees the face of Jesus. And I want to remind you, this is not the first time that John has seen Jesus' face. After all, he walked with Jesus. He, he spoke personally with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus daily for several years. Uh, it would have been easy for John to pick Jesus out in a group. Uh, he knew what he looked like. He, he was very familiar with his, with his appearance. Uh, John had even seen Jesus glorified. Uh, if you remember, uh, Matthew chapter 17 is one of the passages that talks about that. John, James, and, and Peter have this incredible experience with the Lord. Uh, they go up into this mountain, and as Matthew says, After six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light." That's a, a, a whole lot of glory, and this was a transformative experience for those men. Uh, and they, they really were taken aback by the whole thing. But even that, I believe, was only a shadow of the glory that John sees here in Revelation 1. In Matthew 17, it's like the veil was pulled back a little, and they got to see some of the glory of Christ. But here, the veil is cast aside altogether. So what do we see in the face of Christ here? Well, overwhelmingly, we see glory. Uh, that's that's the, the first thing that I think hits any of us as we read through and see this, see this vision. We, it's glorious. Uh, just look at him. Look at the description that John offers. He's clothed in white and gold. His hair is as white as snow. His eyes are like fire. His feet like burning brass. His voice is like a trumpet and like a flood. A sharpened sword stretches from his mouth. His face shines like the sun. What kind of picture does that give us? It's one of glory. Now, as we come to this, the natural thing for many people when they're studying Scripture and they come to a passage like this is to make a list. List out all of these characteristics and then start looking for the symbolism. Uh, so we look at him and, and we say, well, he was wearing white, so what does that stand for? He, he's wearing gold, what does that stand for? His hair is white, what does that mean? His eyes are burning with fire. And... There may be symbolism here. I don't know since Scripture doesn't bring that out. I don't want to focus on that today. I don't, I don't want to try to bring, pull symbols out of this passage today. Um, there may be value in that, but I, I, I'm afraid if we do that, we, we are going to miss the forest for the trees. I want to step back instead and look at him. Look at the picture that, that is painted here. What do you see? Of course, there's glory, but specifically there are a couple of things that really stick out. Uh, consider this. Think about this with me. Uh, gold, white as snow, fire, burning brass, shining like the sun. What do those things all describe? Well, they describe brilliance. This is a brilliant glory. 
And we can only begin to imagine the overwhelming beauty and splendor of this picture. Shining, glittering, glowing majesty. Do you see it? Look at the word pictures that, that John uses. There's nothing really that gleams just like gold. There's nothing that burns like fire. There is nothing that shines like the sun. But here John says, it's all of that. Gleaming like gold, burning like fire, shining like the sun. That, those are the kind of descriptions that I have to put here because of this brilliant glory, this incredible majesty, this incredible... And, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's overwhelming for him. And so we see that kind of brilliance and and we can't come away from this passage without just being in wonder at, at that kind of incredible glory uh, and trying to picture it in our minds and failing, trying to really get a picture of what John is experiencing here. And we can only begin to, to, to just grasp it just a little, and it's still overwhelming. But we also get a hint of something else here. See, these descriptives especially the sword coming out of the mouth, as, as you've probably been, been trying to imagine these things in your own mind as, as we look at these descriptives, it doesn't really give us a beautiful picture. In fact, if someone painted this all up, and, and people have tried, if you, if you painted it up, if you made a picture and you're sticking literally to what the text says here, you end up with something that's rather terrifying, and honestly somewhat grotesque. And, and we, we almost shy away from this because we say, this isn't just how I want to be able to describe it. It's, it's strange. It's not easy to grasp. There are things here that don't make sense. See, what we have to understand, though, is this is a list of, of description, but it's also a list of understatement. John, <laughs> I really feel sorry for John, to be honest with you. You read through the book of Revelation, and over and over again, he has to describe things not exactly as they are. He's just doing the best he can. Because what he sees is impossible to describe. And so this isn't just a brilliant glory. This is an indescribable glory. John doesn't have the words. I, I think he doesn't even have the frame of reference to begin to properly describe what he's seeing. Uh, notice in these verses, as he gives this description... Uh, Verses 12 down through 15, uh, 16, I'm sorry. If you read through those verses, notice how many times he uses words like like and as. They're comparisons. And of course, we often use comparisons when we want to describe something. Uh, something that somebody else hasn't experienced before, we're going to try to compare it to something that they know, right? Um, if somebody's never experienced a specific taste, then we're going to compare it to something that we think they have eaten. If they've never been to a certain place in the world, never seen a certain site or, or visited a certain museum, whatever it is, we're going to try to compare it back to something that they would know. And that's what John is trying to do here. But I don't think that he's saying he looked just like this. Here is the perfect description that will give you exactly the idea of what he looked like. Instead, he's saying, the best way I can describe it is something along the lines of this. I can't really compare it to anything that you know, so I'm going to compare it to the, to the best thing I can think of that you know. Because there is no comparison to Christ. And so, as he tries to describe, he fails. He can't describe this glory. He can't really do justice to Christ. And this is another amazing reminder of Christ's glory. 
we experience things that are beautiful. We experience things that are majestic. We experience things that take our breath away. But this reminds us that Christ's glory isn't just that beautiful sunset that you just can't get enough of. It's, it's beautiful. You feel like beyond anything you've ever experienced. His glory isn't just that moment when you step out into the sun when you've been inside for a while in the dark. That overwhelming brilliance. His glory isn't just the power of deafening breakers that are crashing against the rocks. These are things that we think of as amazing, as hard to describe, because they're overwhelming. And yet we realize as we look here that the glory of Christ is all of those things, all of the things that John uses to try to describe, all of that wrapped up together, and still it's just just the tip of the iceberg, just a tiny little bit of the description of the glory of Christ. Nothing is enough to describe the glory of Jesus as John sees him here. We've all seen those videos, right? When the little kid gets the hearing aids for the first time. They're real tear jerkers. But you watch the video and there's this, this little kid who um, either hasn't been able to hear at all or can't really hear very much at all. And, and they get hearing aids for the first time. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm introducing you for the first time. You're, you're going to be on YouTube following that rabbit hole all afternoon. But, um, but what ha- they, they get these hearing aids. They turn them on. And at first, the kid is, they're not really sure what's going on. And then they realize, they, they're, they're, their mom speaks usually in the videos, and, they, and all of a sudden, they realize, well, I see mom, I feel mom, but I, there's something else. This is different. This is new. I'm, I, and of course, they don't have words to describe it. Most of these kids are, are small, but but they're hearing for the first time. And they realize they're putting the pieces together. I'm hearing my mom's voice. Now, think about trying to describe that moment to that hearing impaired child beforehand. All right, so you're going to experience a sense called hearing. And it's going to be like What do you say then? What do you, what do you compare it to? How do you describe that? How would you explain to them that they're going to experience something entirely new? Think of it this way. Have you ever thought about how you would describe the view from the Empire State Building to someone who has been blind since birth? See, if you've been to the Empire State Building and that you have a friend who hasn't been there, and you want to talk about what it looks like, you can do that, right? You can say, you know, start describing the different things that you see, uh, perhaps compare it to if they've been to another city. And you can compare, you can talk about the buildings, you can talk about the view. You're going to be able to describe it in some way, but what if the person has never seen before? Where would you start? How could you start? The frame of reference isn't there. And I really believe that's what it's like here for John. It's like John is experiencing a new sense. Something that he's never known before. And how do you describe seeing divine things to someone who's ever only seen earthly things? This is indescribable glory. And as we see John struggle to give us a description... That ought to overwhelm us that much more by the glory of the face of Christ. It's very instructive that for John, this glory was so overwhelming that he says in verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Just think about this for a moment. We're trying to imagine this. We're trying to think about this picture. But if all of a sudden we experienced what John experienced right now, I would not be able to continue the lesson. You wouldn't be able to look. Everything would stop. 
and we would fall on our faces before him. That's the glory that we're talking about. So do you see the glory of Jesus? We spend a lot of time at Christmas talking about considering the humanity of Jesus. And rightly so. He was truly 100% man. I am not more human. You are not more human than Jesus was. Now, he was without sin, but he experienced human nature. He was human 100%, completely, all the way. And, and we focus on that, and we, we praise the Lord for that at Christmas time. But sometimes, when we think about the common appearance the baby Jesus had, you know, you see the paintings, um, and, and there's the halo over the head, there's the shining coming from the face, and we understand that's not what it was like. Jesus looked common. His face looked normal to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men as they gazed at him adoringly. And we can lose sight of his face as we see it here in, in Revelation chapter 1. It really is mind-blowing to know that the little baby of Luke 2, who no doubt made those silly faces that newborns make, is the figure of Revelation, whose face shines like the sun, whose glory forced John onto his face. It's the same person. And that's the wonder of the incarnation. Jesus, 100% man, but 100% God. And we see his glory here in John's description. But we don't only see glory here. We see some other amazing characteristics of the unveiled Jesus. We also see his transcendence. Um, and I know that's not a term that we use a lot, uh, but it really is descriptive of, of this, this aspect that we see. Um, if you have a red-letter Bible, this will be especially easy for you. But look at the first words of Jesus Christ in this book of Revelation. They come as a direct address to John's audience in verse 8. Jesus tells us, tells us all, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. What, what is he saying here? Well, Alpha, many of you know, that's the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. Uh, he's the beginning. As John 1.3 tells us, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he's the beginning. He, he's the creator. He's also the ending. As we look at the book of Revelation, it clearly shows us that he is the one who guides history to its catastrophic but divinely decreed end. He is the ending. He started it all. He's going to finish it all. He is the one, as he says here, which is, which was, and which is to come. He's eternal. Without time. Above time. Ruling over time. And he's the Almighty. He's without weakness. He's without defect. He's all capable. There is nothing he cannot do. These are the descriptions that Christ gives of himself in this verse. The first and last, the creator and the completer, the eternal, all-powerful God. And he makes a similar declaration in verse, verses 17 and 18. Uh, we read those earlier. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. He is the everlasting, ever-living one. He has power over death. So he's not just glorious, but he's also transcendent. He, he's above the things that constrain us. Consider, by way of contrast, John. John talks about his circumstance here in Revelation 1. He says that he was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And many of you probably know 
what he's saying is that he has been banished there for his faith. He's stuck on this island. That circumstance of life had a lot to do with what John could and couldn't do. It had a lot to do with the things that he would have been thinking about, the decisions he would have been trying to make. John is stuck on Patmos. And so he can't just live like he's not stuck on Patmos. That makes a difference. It constrains John. In contrast, here's Jesus. He's eternal. He is almighty. He's transcendent. He's not limited by circumstances. Place, time, and ability. Those are things that constantly limit us. We can't just decide to be in a different place than we are. We can't just use our time two different ways at the same time. We can't do things that we can't do. If I'm not able to do something, then I can't do it. It's part of being human. We're we're limited in those ways. We're limited by time, space, and ability. But he, the Almighty, he's without weakness. He's without anything that binds him. All of those things are nothing to him. He's above it all. He's unconstrained. Think of it this way. If you're getting ready to board an airplane, and you look out of the window, and you see snow falling thick and fast, what do you think? You think, this is so beautiful. It's going to be such a nice flight. No, you think, this is not good. If this continues, they're going to close the runway. My airplane won't be able to leave. I'll be stuck here. And I'm going to have to try to sleep on those seats that all have armrests. This is not going to work very well for me. This is going to be an uncomfortable time. My plans all of a sudden got messed up. The circumstances, in this case the weather, have a lot to do with what that airplane can and cannot do. And in turn, have a lot of influence on your plans and on what you can and cannot do. That weather makes a difference because you're in it. But what if you're in the airplane at 45,000 feet when the thick snow begins to fall? Well, unless you're following the weather, you wouldn't even necessarily know. You're above it all. You're above the clouds. So rain, snow, sleet, whatever you want, it's, it's not going to touch you. You have transcended it all. You're above it. And you don't have to worry about it until you start descending or until you find out that it's snowed out on the other end and you're not going to be able to land. Um, Once you get down below those clouds, you're going to have to worry about it again. But while you're above it all, you have transcended that weather. It doesn't affect you anymore. We are love that, the way that he says it. I am he that liveth and was dead. No one else can say that. No one else can say, I live and I was dead. And nobody certainly can say they have the keys of hell and death. He battled death and won. He's transcendent. Now, remembering that, thinking about that, think again of that night when angels told shepherds to go find what? A baby. And that baby had a birth date, had a birth minute. He would experience a death. He would know pain and the limitations of a human body. He would know what it means to be limited by time and space. Think about the limitations associated with the incarnation. Think of this Jesus, the Jesus of Revelation 1, with that brilliant indescribable glory becoming a baby spending nine months in a womb experiencing human birth and coming into the world helpless unable to take care of his most basic needs incapable of providing his own sustenance 
or taking care of his own hygiene. He was completely dependent, as every newborn is. Think about that in light of this. In John 17, Jesus talks about the glory he had with the Father before the world was. So this glory that we see here in Revelation 1, sometimes we think about it as it's almost like Jesus began when he was born. And then he lived through this life, he died, he rose, and then he got the glory after he ascended. Sometimes we think about it that way. The fact is, Jesus said he had that glory with the Father before the world even began. So the glory we see in Revelation 1 wasn't just his experience after the resurrection and ascension. He had that glory before the incarnation as well as after. But the transcendent one, the eternal one, the almighty one, constrained himself. He made himself nobody. He humbled himself. Do you see? Do you grasp his transcendence? Do you grasp his glory? And, and finally, the wonderful characteristic of Jesus that every time we see it, it amazes us. We see here as well, Jesus' mercy. See, as he opens this letter, John gives a little song of praise to Jesus. And I love this when these writers, it, they, they get so excited about what they're going to share in, in their epistles, in, in what they're writing about, that they just start out with a song of praise to the Lord. We see Paul do that. Uh, here, John does it. He says, he, he starts talking about Christ in, in verse 5. He says, and from Jesus Christ, uh, he's, he's basically saying, this letter is from John, I'm the one writing this, but it's not just me. This is also from Jesus Christ. And, and it's almost like at the beginning he planned to say, um, this, is, this is from, from John, and then this is also the message from Jesus, and then he's going to go on and write about it. But as he says this, he says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go back and think, even as John reflects on here, about his glory, his transcendence. What an amazing person, what an amazing God Christ is. That incomparable Jesus, he loved us. He poured out his blood to wash away our sins. He made us sinful beggars to be kings and priests with him. You think of a figure with all the glory that John describes here in Revelation 1. We think of a God like that, with the infinite splendor that he ascribes to himself. And how would you expect a God like that to treat puny little sinful humans? What would you expect from him? What would you, as, as a human, expect to receive from a God like that? With all of this glory with all of this splendor, with all of this power. Well, we would naturally expect for him to treat us with wrath or possibly just with disdain. To think nothing of these little humans who think something of themselves, who in comparison to him, of course, are nothing. Yet how does he respond to the trembling John in Revelation 1.17. He's revealed his glory to John, one of those puny little humans. And John is trembling in fear. He's on his face. It's like he's, he just, he says it was like he died. He just flat on his face before God. 
And what does Christ do? And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. Christ reaches out, and he says, Fear not. I don't know how much you know about pagan mythology, and I'm not encouraging you to know any more than you know about pagan mythology. Um, honestly, it's, it's not worth your time. But if you read stories from Greek and Norse mythology, it really makes you shake your head. Uh, these gods simply seem to be super powerful, incredibly petty humans. They get fooled, and then they turn around and cruelly punish the people who fooled them. Uh, They engage in grossly lascivious acts. They take part in feats of strength and contests in order to show off and protect their pride. Uh, These stories, it's just, it's, it makes us shake our heads. They're fueled by lust, by pride, by jealousy, by selfishness, just like us. And sometimes we can be like the people who dreamt up those pagan mythologies. And we can try to project our characteristics on God and expect him to act like we would act. And I'm really glad that the Bible doesn't read like a bunch of Greek and Norse mythological stories because God is not like us. The true God is different. He is not petty or proud. He is completely holy and all-powerful, but he still cares about his faltering, failing creatures, and he reaches out to us with mercy. Now, that is not in any way to, to go in opposition to what Pastor talked about this morning, because the Bible is clear that this same Jesus is the one who will sit in judgment. 2 Timothy 4.1 informs us that he will judge the quick, or the living, and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. He is going to judge. And he will judge fairly and righteously. He will judge without sparing. But this glorious, just judge with eyes that burn like fire still looks at his redeemed with love and mercy. That's amazing. To see the picture as John paints it and then to see the mercy that is shown to John even as he experiences the glory of Christ. And this certainly isn't the only place in this book. Uh, Just keep reading in Revelation. Read chapters 2 and 3, the messages that Christ sends to the seven churches. There are plenty of rebukes in those books for these wayward groups of believers. But still, to every one of them, he offers mercy. He doesn't write any of them off. Now, he says, there will come a day... When I will write you off, if you don't listen, if you don't heed, if you don't follow. But he still extends mercy to every one of them. We can can spend so much time here continuing to look at at the image of Christ as John sees him. There, There is so much depth here. So much wonder here. And honestly, so much of it that I wish I could talk about I wish I could describe and it's beyond my ability to describe it's beyond my ability to imagine but we see the face of Christ can you begin to see it if you can how should you respond well we saw how John responded he fell on his feet face Job chapter 42 we see how Job responded When he experienced God, he said in verses 5 and 6, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, 
but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Daniel, in chapter 10, receives a divine vision, and he says, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone, and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. We all know Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. When he saw God high and lifted up, how did he respond? Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you see a common theme? These men experience at least something of the glory of God, of the presence of Christ. And they're humbled. They're repentant. They see themselves as nothing. Are you humbled before him today? Think of the most amazing or most unbelievable experience of your life. And perhaps you've tried to, but how does it go when you try to describe that to others? Imagine trying to talk about it, trying to explain to them what that experience was like. Whatever it is. It probably doesn't go very well for you. And even John here, who physically saw the glorious face of Christ struggled to provide any kind of real description. So I'm clearly hopeless today to do justice to that glory and transcendence. But praise God that I and you have experienced his love and mercy. You know, again, this brings me back to the Christmas story. I, I honestly don't know how much the wise men understood about who Christ was. There's conjecture about how they knew what they knew and, and, and what conclusions they had come to, how much they understood. Uh, but really, who Christ was was just beginning to become clear at that point. Uh, even Mary, it doesn't seem, had a full grasp of who he was. So I don't know all that they understood. I, I don't know what they grasped of this, but they got it right in Matthew 2.11. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Remember, his human face looked no different from any other young child's face. But they saw something of the divine face, the face of Revelation 1, behind that human face. They understood that the Jesus of Matthew 1 is also the Jesus of Revelation 1. And even though these eyes, your eyes, have never seen his glory, we too, like the wise men, can fall down and worship. And I believe that that is why John tried to describe here the glory that he saw. He probably started into it, and of course we understand this is The Holy Spirit was guiding John here. But the language just wasn't there. The words just aren't there. In Greek, they're not there in English. But I believe that that is why God led John to do this. John probably knew beginning into this that it was hopeless. That he could never give any kind of justice to what he had seen. But he still described him here to inspire us to worship. Because even a glimpse of the face of Jesus humbles us and makes us want to give him praise. And I trust that that is all of us. That is our testimony this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much that you have not left us in the dark concerning who Christ is 
And we understand there are so many things that are mysterious, that are unknown to us, that are impossible for us to know about you, about the person of Jesus Christ, about the future, about the events that are described in the book of Revelation. So much of it is mystery to us. And even as we read your word, we, we still have questions. We still, we still wonder. And yet you've given us enough for us to begin to get a little bit of a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us all to truly worship today. Thank you for the wonder of this time of year and, and the incarnation that the God of Revelation 1 became the baby of Luke 2 and Matthew 1. And, and it's amazing. It's, it's unthinkable. We cannot grasp it. And it just reminds us of your incredible, amazing, divine wisdom, that you are above all of the things that we consider to be so, so vitally a part of life. Father, help us to truly see your glory, your transcendence today. Help us to worship Christ. And my prayer is that because of the time we spent together today, that it would encourage members of our church family, others who may be watching, to dig into this book and into other books of the Bible, looking for the glory of Christ, so that we all can worship you together. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.